If you have your Bible with you today, please open with me to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll start reading in verse 1 in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, as you no doubt know, it is um, right around the Valentine's Day, uh, around Valentine's season, I guess you'd say. And man, if you didn't know that yesterday was Valentine's Day, uh, well, I'm guessing you probably do know that, uh, need to know that. Uh, as, yeah, the day after you surely know if you didn't know yesterday. Um, as somebody has called Valentine's Day, it's Singles Awareness Day, and, and uh, of course, we want to be sensitive to that. But, um, but you know what? For, for the last several days, and, and really it seems like every, every holiday starts a little bit earlier, but it seems like the last several days, all we've been hearing about is love this and love that. We've been seeing hearts everywhere and flowers and candy and, and all those things that go along with uh, this, this holiday of uh, Valentine's Day. But you know, I, I don't really think our culture knows what love is. We talk about love an awful lot, but we don't know what, what it is. And many times people go to one extreme or the other. Some people think uh, love is the same thing as lust. And so, uh, of course, lust is a desire for someone or something. And it's a very selfish thing. It's, it's wanting to, uh, to make yourself happy at the expense of somebody else. It's very self-centered, uh, very, very self-gratifying. It's, it's, uh, it's wanting something that you don't have. On the other hand, a lot of other people think that love is the same thing as, as this fuzzy feeling that you get when you're around that special someone. And I, I freely acknowledge that, uh, that love has a feeling component to it, but love is much more than, uh, than a feeling. I, instead, love is a choice. Love is something that put, puts others first. And I, that's a very unnatural thing to do, and so we must choose, we must use our will uh, to do it. Now, the way that I introduce my text, how many of you are thinking about love in a romantic sense now? Probably, okay, one person. Uh, all right. Um, I figure that probably most people are thinking about love in romantic terms, and that's definitely a place for love to show itself. But I want us to elevate our idea of love beyond just romance. And, uh, and I, wanted, I, wanted to, I want to apply it to our Christian lives. Not only our Christian lives, what we think of as, as our Christian lives with our church, devotional lives, stuff like that, but, but really our whole lives. And we must do that because love is essential for the Christian. Love is an essential aspect for the Christian. And I've titled my sermon, as you can see up on the, uh, up on the screen, If You Ain't Got Love, You Ain't Got Nothing. And that is terrible grammar, I know, but it is good theology. And, and that's what Paul tells us in our, our uh, chapter in 1 Corinthians. Now, we have to realize when Paul penned these words in 1 Corinthians 13... He was not giving us something to, uh, uh, to recite at Christian weddings. He was not giving us uh, something to read at Valentine's Day. But he was putting this in as part of a larger argument. And I'm not going to get into the whole book of 1 Corinthians, just kind of give you, uh, just to kind of hit some high points. 1 Corinthians uh, was written to a church that was very messed up. The church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. There was rank immorality going on in the church. Uh, there were factions. This group was breaking off into, into a clique, and, and they were against this group over here, and there, there was fighting and bickering. Um, there were people who wanted to have these uh, real showy spiritual gifts so that everybody would look at them and think they were super holy. And, and so their church service, because everybody's trying to one-up each other, got to be kind of chaotic. And, and so Paul spends much of his letter in 1 Corinthians addressing these different topics. And so when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, what he's doing is he's saying, you know what, all these things that you're doing, it's all meaningless if it's not rooted in love. 
And so this applies to us specifically as Christians. How we treat people in the church, how we serve, how we love our families, all parts of our lives is rooted back in love. So if you found 1 Corinthians 13, uh, please stand with me as we read the first uh, seven verses. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act, uh, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I just want to stop right there. Please be seated. Now the first truth I want you to see here in verses 1 to 3 is that our all is nothing without love. Our all is nothing without love. In other words... As I said before, love is the key to the Christian's life. Now, uh, I want you to notice in, in, uh, in chapter 13 there is a progression. And, and I want you to uh, notice how many times that word all is used. Now, he starts out, he talks about uh, the words that we say, the, things that, uh, the, the words that we speak. And he says that if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, he's speaking in hyperbole, and he's saying if we can speak, if we are the, the greatest orator in the history of mankind, even if, even if we can go far beyond anything that man can do, and it's like we're speaking from heaven, a heavenly message with heavenly power, and, and, and we're doing all that, but, he, but yet we don't have love. If our words are not rooted in love, if, if, uh, if they're not saturated by love, all we're doing is making a bunch of rackets. And then he goes on to talk about a, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And your translation may render those terms a little bit differently, but that's, that's the right idea. And as I was studying this text, one of, the, one of the guys that I was reading said, a cymbal solo is not very fun to listen to. And I thought to myself, I have heard of a drum solo. I've heard of a piano solo, guitar solo. I've even heard an accordion solo. I've never heard of a cymbal solo. So being the uh, person that I am, I got on the Internet. And I googled cymbal solo. And I ended up at YouTube and over 150,000 videos came up to the, to the search for solo, cymbal solo. 150,000. Now, I didn't watch all 150,000 videos, I've, I'll confess. But I did watch several, or, or a few at least. And I watched a few of them. And you know what? Some people are very skilled percussionists. Some people are not. But either way, that guy was right. It's not very exciting to watch somebody bang on a cymbal. And uh, it kind of reminds me of, you know, kids that get out the wooden spoon and, and the soup pot. You know, they start banging on it, and they just make a bunch of racket. And that's kind of the point of what Paul's saying. You may be a, a silver-tongued speaker, a wordsmith extraordinary, and, and if you're saying what you're saying without love, all you're doing is making noise. You can be super skilled, but you're just making a bunch of racket. 
But there's even a deeper meaning than this because we don't live in the culture that uh, Paul found himself in. Back in that part of the world at, at uh, the time that Paul was alive and writing, there were mystery religions and cults and all these different things. And basically, uh, they had this, this idea that if you could connect with the God that you're worshiping, you would end up uh, doing these ecstatic, stutter, uh, ecstatic utterances and you'd be babbling on, making all kinds of noise, and, and it'd, be all, it'd be gibberish. And this would be a very frenzied experience, and in the midst of that, they would be banging gongs and clanging cymbals. And I think what Paul is saying here is, is more than just if what you're saying is not rooted in and saturated with love, it, besides saying, well, that's just making a bunch of racket, I think kind of he's going beyond that and saying, really, you're not doing any better than what a pagan is. Now, I spent a lot more time here on, uh, on this first verse, but I, I want us to quickly move on. He goes on to exaggerate more in verses 2 and 3, and again, he's using that word all an awful lot. Look what he says. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, giving your all, uh, literally, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Again, there's that progression. He says that, that you may have all the knowledge and be incredibly strong in faith. In other words, things are going to make you something in the Christian community. He says you can have all that, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. And then again, he says if, if uh, you give all that you have up to and including your life, but if it's not done out of love, if, if it profits you nothing. So here's the progression. He says without love, uh, you can uh, do nothing. You are nothing, and you gain nothing. That's what he says. So today would be a good day to do a motivation check. Why do you do what you do? Why do you have the ministry that you have? Uh, why do you deal with your family the way that you do? Uh, why do you serve the way you do in church or at work? Because whatever you do, it must be done in love. It must be done in love. And... And so, um, again, this, this touches all part, parts of our life, how we discipline our kids, how we talk to our parents. Uh, why do you teach or preach or sing or whatever it is? Because if it's not based out of love, it's wrong. Now, Paul goes on in uh, verses 4 to 7, and he tells us essentially that love cares uh, more about others than about self. And what he does is he takes this idea of love and he applies it. You say, okay, Paul, um, I understand I, everything should be rooted in love, but how's that going to look? And so he gives us a big list, and, and he goes on in uh, verses 8 to 13, and, and we didn't read those, but uh, this is a pretty extensive list. And so he tells us, step by step, this is what love is going to look like in your daily life. And I, I want you to notice, as, as you think back over uh, what we read and as you scan down through those verses again, I want you to notice two things. First, none of these things involve feelings. None of these things involve feelings. Now, as I said before, people today speak of love like it's a hole or it's a warp zone in Mario Brothers. I'm a child of the 80s. I'll, I'll think of that. You know, because a hole, what do you do? You can fall into it. A warp zone, you can fall out of it. And so people say, well, love, I just fell into love. One day I woke up and I just... I fell out of love with my spouse and, you know, whatever. No, that's not what love is. And the second thing that I notice in here is that all of these things are actions. He says these are things to do and these are things 
not to do. And so, uh, so these are action things that we should be doing. And so Paul, he gives us a list. And it's great if you're outlining, because he just, and you have point one, patient, point two, kind. He doesn't give us any, uh, he doesn't expand on it any. So I'm going to just hit these in bullet form, kind of like Paul does, and uh, we'll see what he says. Look at what he says in verse 4. Love is patient. Now, patient means, well, you know what patient means. It means long-tempered. It's not easily angered. Now, we all have times when we're short-fused. Maybe it's lack of sleep. A couple days ago, I was very short-fused. I've been up several times with, with John and... And man, I was, man, I was, I was grumpy, and not patient. Maybe we're stressed. Maybe somebody provokes us. Some sometimes we just have. Some people just have that temperament, you know, the old crouchy old grouch. And when we act that way, we don't act in love. And, and I'll let you just apply this to whomever it was that you were last impatient with. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your kids, your parents, uh, whoever it is. Love is patient. He also goes on to say love is kind. And again, we all know what kindness is. It's acting benevolent. benevolent, It means that we're kind. It's it's when we reach out to others and try to do them good. It's it's showing compassion to people. It says uh, love is not jealous. Now this this is starting to get kind of, you know, envious. You know the green-eyed monster, envy? It... You ever see? Do you ever see somebody? Something good happens to them, and you say, "Man, I just wish that had happened to me." Man, I, they won the Powerball, and you know what I'd do with four hundred fifty million dollars? Yeah, that's the kind of thing we think. And it, I wish what that they had, I had. We say, "I just, I give at least three million of it to the church," you know, or or we come up with whatever it is, and we. Oh, they got a new car. I can't believe they got a new car. Man, I wish I had enough money to get me one of them. Or, or we start seeing the blessings that God pours out on people. And we say, you know, I just don't get why God lets that person have whatever it is and He doesn't let me have it. Envy. Jealousy. When you compare yourself to other people, that's not love. When you're jealous of what they have, it's not love. Now, you may love that person, but you're not acting in love. Look at verse 4. He goes on to say, does not brag and is not arrogant. Those are kind of uh, sibling terms. Love does not vaunt itself. It doesn't toot its own horn. It doesn't seek to be the center of attention. And arrogant is, is kind of the same way. It, it means to be puffed up. Now, we live, I think probably about everybody here lives in a rural setting, and so you can probably identify with this. The other day I saw, I saw something that, that really... Uh, just stood out of my mind as being arrogant. I was driving down the road, and there were some turkeys out in the field, right out by the road. And there was this one boy, he was all fanned out. And he was strutting his stuff. You ever seen one of them? And he was, he was getting his groove on, you know, and he was strutting around trying to attract the ladies. He was puffed up. He thought he was all that. That is what arrogance is. And and maybe you know somebody like that. I've known people like that. They're like a turkey with this this strutting stuff. They're prideful. They're they're out of touch with reality sometimes. They have uh, wealth or talent or opportunities or whatever it is, and they think that they are the source of all those things instead of God. But love doesn't do that. Love puts other people first. And when you're arrogant, you put self first. 
He goes on in verse 5 to say that love does not act unbecomingly. That means uh, unseemly or inappropriate or rude. Think the last time you were rude. When, you, when, you're, when you're rude to that person, maybe it was at the restaurant, maybe it was at the store, maybe it was at your house. You probably didn't say loving things, did you? Or you didn't say it in a loving way. He goes on to say it doesn't seek its own. Again, it has that idea of looking out for yourself. It's not provoked. This has the idea of getting stirred up or exasperated. Now, I sometimes get exasperated, and we all do. But it does, love would say it may happen, but it takes a long time for it to happen. It doesn't happen easily. Uh, look, look at what else he says in verse 6. Um, or sorry, at the end of verse five, it takes it does not take into account a wrong suffered. The the word account here means an inventory. Have you ever known somebody that keeps an inventory of all the wrongs that have been done to him? I've known I've known people that man, if you talk to them, they can tell you about somebody that slighted them in grade school, and they could be an old person, and they they just remember it. Somebody has offended them in some way, and it's like they have a spreadsheet. Oh, this person did this on this date. This person did this. And their list may go back 30, 40, 50 years. And, and they just, they're, they're not forgiving. And that's, that's the key to this not taking account of wrong suffered. Forgiveness. You remember the disciples said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? And what did he say? Seventy times seven. Forgive others, Paul says, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, I came across uh, uh, an account about George Washington. Everybody likes old George Washington. And I, I came across an account about him this week that I had never uh, seen or heard before uh, that really illustrates this idea of forgiveness. It was uh, penned by Isaac Potts, who was Washington's temporary landlord. And it was around the time of um, Valley Forge and all that winter and everything. And according to uh, Isaac Potts, there was a, uh, a turncoat named Michael Whitman. And, of course, he had betrayed the, uh, uh, the American forces to the British, and he had given them all kinds of information. It was found out that he was doing that, and so uh, he, was, he was tried and found guilty of spying, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. And so he was sentenced to death, and, uh, and there was a man that came that walked for miles and miles and miles. His name was Peter Miller. And on the evening before uh, Whitman was executed, Miller showed up at, at the camp. Now, he had done a great service to uh, many of the soldiers and stuff in, uh, in the American Army. And so he asked to see Washington. They got him right in. And he went in before Washington. He said, I have a favor to ask you. And Washington said, oh, okay, uh, what is it? He said, I would like you to pardon Michael Whitman. Now, Washington was, was taken aback. He said, that's impossible. Whitman was, uh, he has done all in his power to betray us, even offering to join the British and help destroy us. He said, in times like these, we cannot be lenient to traitors. For that reason, I cannot pardon your friend. And Miller said, friend, he's no friend of mine. He's my bitterest enemy. He's persecuted me for years. He's even beaten me and spit in my face, knowing full well that I would not strike back. Michael Whitman is no friend of mine. So that puzzled Washington. He said, then why would I pardon him? 
He said, I, I ask it of a great personal, as a great personal favor. He said, why? He said, I ask it because Jesus did as much for me. Washington turned away, went to a different room, wrote out the pardon and gave it to him. And Miller didn't trust anybody to, uh, to get the message to Whitman. And so he walked miles and miles and miles in snow and slush, got lost and all these things. Finally, he got to, uh, to Whitman just before he was about to be executed. He gave the man the pardon. They released him. And Whitman's life was changed forever because of the, the mercy that was shown to him, that, that forgiveness that was shown. And that's, that's what Paul is talking about. Love keeps no record of wrongs. He goes on to say in, uh, in verse 6, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, love hates sin. It, hate, it hates sin in self. It hates sin in somebody else. And so uh, if somebody sees somebody fall into sin, the person that loves them is not going to be happy about it. They're not going to think it's funny. They're not going uh, to be glad but they're also not going to give approval when somebody's doing what's wrong. Love rejoices when it sees truth and hears truth. He finishes up with, in our text in verse 7 by saying that love bears all things, believes all things, uh, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, to bear means to, uh, to put up with, but that Greek word also means to cover. So it could mean it overlooks the faults of others, but... Uh, other commentators think thinks that it means that we cover in the sense of protecting. Not that we cover up some serious sin, but, but rather, you know, there's always gossip. You ever have somebody come to you and gossip? We have a choice. You can either spread that gossip or you can stop it. Or you can do your best to stop it. You can try to keep from somebody from being embarrassed. And that's, that's the idea, I think, of, of this love. It, it endures. It, it covers all things. Or bears all things. He also said it believes all things. Now this does not mean that we're gullible, but instead it means that uh, when somebody does something to us, we don't automatically assign the wrong motives. We we try to give people the benefit of the doubt. It hopes all things. It believes things are going to work out. It endures all things. It doesn't give up. No matter what throw, what's thrown at it, it stays the course. I think Matthew Henry summed it up well when he said charity, and that's the old, old word for love, charity is an utter enemy to selfishness. It does not desire or seek its own praise or honor or profit or pleasure. Not that charity destroys all regard to ourselves or that the charitable man should neglect himself and all his interests, but charity never seeks its own to the hurt of others or to neglect others. If it, it ever prefers the welfare of others to its private advantage. Folks, if you ain't got love, you ain't got nothing. As I said before, it's bad grammar, but it's great theology. That's what Paul says. So the question is, how much of what we looked at just today describes you? How much of it describes me? You say, well, some of those I do pretty good at. Some of them, not so much. Well, what is it that, uh, that you need to change? Maybe you need to work on your patience. Maybe you need to uh, maybe take a moment before you respond when somebody makes you mad. Maybe you need to be that person that stops the gossip before it starts. Maybe you need, when you see somebody that gets into sin, they get into trouble, you don't say, ha-ha, serves them right. 
What is it that you need to change? And if this doesn't describe you, why not? It could be maybe that, uh, that you've never experienced the forgiveness that Christ offers. Jesus said in one place that he who uh, is forgiven much loves much. And maybe you don't love much because you've not been forgiven. But you can be today. You can be saved if you'll repent of your sin. I want you to stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to give you a moment to honestly consider what is your level of love. Because love is more than a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Just that list. Kind of like a checklist. Patient, yes. Kind. Oh, not too kind. What area is it that you need to work on? It's not saying that you don't love that person when you're, when you're impatient, when you're unkind. But you're not acting in love when you do it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask you to help uh, each of us here to uh, to be more loving, to be loving towards one another, uh, to be loving towards um, people that we work with, um, people in our families. And God, I ask you to help each of us to um, well, just have that stuff that comes out of us naturally. Because we've been forgiven and we know what love is as we can show it to other people. God, I ask you to be with each person that's here. Help each one identify that area they need to work on. Help me to identify those areas. Continue to do that. And God, for that person maybe who's never been saved, they never turn from their sin. I ask that you would convict them and draw them today. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.